You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from a special guest speaker. Hi, everyone. My name is John Reimers. Around here, I'm known as Sarah's husband. (laughs) Sorry, please be seated. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. That's such a compliment. Tonight, I have the distinct honor of introducing our speaker, Catherine Wolf. Jay and Catherine have been friends of Sarah and mine for years, 15 years actually to be exact. So we've been uh, privileged to walk through a lot of the the story that you're about to hear uh, with them. Um, And that has been a a distinct honor to see God's redemptive hand in so many things as they have taught us all so much about how to to suffer strong and and live the good hard life. So without uh, any further introduction, every second I spend up here is a second wasted from what Catherine has to offer. Yeah. Okay. Should I turn it off? Got it. Yeah, totally. Or should I turn it off? Yeah. And that's Jay, my husband. So right about now, if you don't already know me, which I do know a lot of you in this room, but if you didn't know anything about the speaker tonight or what was about to happen, you might be like, wait. Why is there a lady in a wheelchair on this stage? I don't need to be bummed out in my life. I have enough hard things. I don't want to carry anything else right now. Don't want to feel sad. Nope, got enough going on in my world. Or maybe you are the really like sweet, maybe from the deep south church lady in the back who's saying to her friend next to her, bless her heart. That sweet little thing, she must be having such a hard, hard time. Well, let me assure you, I am not having such a hard time. However, um, it is true that I can't walk very well and that kind of teeter around a bit. The thing is, I don't really want to bum you out, and I hope tonight will not. But I actually don't want to inspire you with this amazing story of hope and Jesus showing up. That's actually not what I feel called to do either. Um, That might happen too, and I wouldn't be sad if it did. But that's not actually what I think the Lord has called me to do, has actually saved my life and left me on this planet to do. I think it's something different. I think it is to share that we actually all have these. That it's not just those of us who have wheelchairs on the outside of our bodies. That, in fact, all of us have them inside of us, don't we? We've all got stuff. It's easier to hide it when it's not out in front of everybody and you know there's no denying when I walk in a room not walk when I roll into a room that my face is paralyzed or my speech is funny and my hand is messed up and on and on and I'm in a big chair but the reality is 
Everybody's got a big one of these inside of them, and listen, I do for sure. And I don't think I've ever met anyone whose life is perfect, or any of your lives perfect, is everything exactly like you thought it would be when you were a little girl or a little boy? No, nobody's is. So I imagine we're all, we all might relate to this. We all might feel like there's brokenness in every story. And as believers, we know there is deep brokenness. Things are not right on earth. We live in a fallen world. Sin has entered the story. Shame has entered the story. There's loss and sadness. And I believe, and we'll talk about this in a minute, some can be lifelong, in fact. However, and I think the Lord kind of allowed me to wake up to this reality um, years after the stroke, but this is kind of cool. So I just talked about how we all have invisible wheelchairs. And for me, <coughs> excuse me, after the stroke, people would always say, Catherine is wheelchair bound now. Catherine's bound by her wheelchair, she's wheelchair bound. And that just like never settled well with me. And it actually has nothing to do with the fact that I'm physically able to stand, so not that at all. The notion of wheelchair bound, I think a binding, a constraining element in my life was always just super unappealing. But deeper than that, I realized I don't like the verbiage of wheelchair bound because it is entirely inaccurate. <laughs> that in fact, because the wheelchair helps me to show up in my story and get in the room or the stage I want to be on, it helps me to like steward what God has given me. The wheelchair is actually an element to my freedom. So I'm not wheelchair bound. In fact, I'm wheelchair free. And here's the really cool part. I do not pretend to know the pains you are walking through even right now, even this minute, or the hard stuff in your story. But as I told you, I believe we all have invisible wheelchairs. So could there be a universe, could there possibly be in your story, a way to sort of transform your thinking, to see something that is holding you back as something that could be setting you free? Could something that is seen as binding you be something that God could be somehow, some way using to give you an avenue towards freedom? I think it logically makes sense that it could be possible. And I say that so tenderly because there's no doubt so much pain associated with the wheelchairs that are in all of our stories. I'm so sorry, the water's usually on that side, so I'm like, I really don't want to fall right about now. This is a bad side, just, you know. So sorry, guys. Why, thank you, John. I'll just do a little dance here and get back in the seat. Well, I should show y'all while I'm standing. I can technically walk, kind of hobble around a little. It doesn't work very well, but it's, um, it's something they said I'd never walk again, and I'm, I kind of am, and it looks funny. Um, if you think about it, uh, thank you. It, it kind of actually looks like I'm sort of dancing because I kind of sway weird and it's funny looking. Um, but this brings me to a delightful point, so I'm so glad this moment happened. 
I think as people, we have got to start, and as we talk about parenting, we've really got to start examining the notion of curiosity without assumption. Write that down if you're taking notes. That we must bring up a generation of children who looks people in the eye and asks their story. And it's not like in a digital fog that they can't come up from air, but instead it's like, wait, so you are in a wheelchair, but you can stand. Oh, that's different than how I understood people with disabilities could live. And what if we started in places like that, of just being curious without assumption about each other? We talk about that a lot around Hope Heals, that this world would be a different place if we simply were curious and didn't make assumptions that we thought we knew this is what it looks like. And it doesn't look anything like that. Okay, now I'm going to safely sit down and I'm going to share with y'all just a tiny, tiny bit of my story because like I said, half the people in the room I know, so it'd be really weird to go like deep dive, but if you're interested, there's a website and we can point you to some resources. But just in a super quick nutshell, and um, side note before I begin, it's really special to be here because everything I'm about to share happened in like a 20 mile radius of this place. So Pepperdine is where I'm about to talk about, which is where we were living when I had the stroke. UCLA is the hospital that saved my life. Um, the baby that was born right before the stroke, St. John, Santa Monica. I mean, that's like a few streets from here, isn't it? So we're talking like, this should feel super relevant to you. I got to speak this morning at Calvary Christian School, and I got to look those fifth through eighth graders in the eye, and it was really, it was powerful. Just to say like, this isn't in sub-Saharan Africa that this all went down. This was up the street, and it wasn't that long after you were the age. Like I was 25, just turned 26, and it, it's powerful. Anyway, I think it's cool and I think it means something. I don't really know what, but it's just special to be here. And last note, uh, my CBS, I was in community Bible study before I moved out of LA and it met right here in this room. And I just love that I'm back on the stage. I spoke one time too. So it's really sweet. Anyway, enough details, get to the story. As a 26-year-old, new mother, six-month-old baby, and young wife, and my husband and I were living at Pepperdine Law School in the law school housing, um, I collapsed. No medical history, no family history, no symptoms, no warning, no indication there could be anything wrong with a healthy young mother who'd had a baby naturally six months before. Despite that, hit the ground, started throwing up, eventually rushed into surgery. I'd had a stroke caused by the rupture of an AVM, which is an arterial venous malformation. It's a very rare condition that forms in your brain before you're born. So I believe that congenital condition is when I was fearfully and wonderfully made by the Lord in my mother's womb. And she had me in this AVM, this malformed group of blood vessels would grow and grow and grow until I was 26 and then it ruptured. And when it ruptured, it caused the brainstem stroke. And this is really um, beautiful now to share, but even a few years ago, I don't think that I was able 
to really wrap my mind around the fact that the reason I'm so impaired today is actually not because I'm a stroke survivor, even though that's what you would think, right? Like, she's a stroke survivor, so she's disabled. But no, it's actually because the surgeon, Dr. Nestor Gonzalez at UCLA, decided to operate. He knew what he was doing. He made sacrifices intentionally in order to save my life. So knowing what the deficits would look like, not fully, but to some degree, knowing he cut the facial nerve, knowing many of these things would happen, he decided it was worth it to keep me alive, to sustain life. And is that worth it? Is it worth it for me to live in a broken body, but to be here? Yeah, it is! <laughs> I mean, are you kidding? Like, I believe if you have a pulse, you have a purpose. And obviously, there's tremendous purpose left for me on this earth, or I would not be here. And I think that beautiful truth is so biblical, that the Lord is always doing that in our stories. The beautiful truth of Job, that he wounds and he heals that there can be wounding, but perhaps it's so there can be healing. And maybe it looks different than you think. I think, honestly, it always does look different than we think. Um, I would love to tell you that after having the stroke, that everything's been coming up roses ever since. It's just been so amazing and just like, glory to God, hallelujah. The reality has been very different. It has been very hard. Um, I cannot pretend that 14 and a half months ago when I was effortlessly running through Pepperdine, getting off my baby weight, no doubt, um, there is not a sadness that that will likely never happen again. That layered with 12 surgeries post-stroke, endless terrible falls and ER visits, um, a severely broken leg after I relearned to walk, a broken set of ribs from falling into a bathtub, and most recently um, I fell and tore my ACL, MCL, and meniscus and had to have surgery. And that doesn't even touch all of the ongoing brain issues. I mean, my brain is very messed up, but it's such a rare condition that it is, uh, what's the word even, like undiagnosable? Is that it? Undiagnosable brain condition. Anyway, all that to say, all is not well currently in my life, um, which is an interesting space to speak from and a beautiful space to speak from, I think, because the ones who have it all together that are telling you any outs of how to live maybe aren't the voices that are most resonating with some of the pains of our lives. And I speak um, from a place of some brokenness and hard suffering. And it is um, super duper humbling to talk even an ounce about parenting. Sarah's so funny. She um, wanted me to speak about parenting for the parent night, and I feel so beyond inadequate, it's almost funny. Um, 
And, and yet, I was so struck by her S's, that this is Sarah Reamer's S's, well, she had three, that I said, can I write a talk about these and add one, sorrow, so now we have four S's to work with. So I love the S's. But I currently have a 15-year-old child and a seven-year-old, and James and John are TBD. We don't know. They could be... <laughs> They could be entirely dysfunctional adults. I have no idea. So I very humbly present to you, like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think there are some deep truths in my story that are worthy of sharing with the parents, which is what you're hoping for, and don't worry, I'm going to, but I'm just, I'm prefacing it by saying TBD. I have no idea what we're looking at 20 years from now. And no judgment because, I mean, in the best parenting situations, things go way awry. So take no credit, take no blame. That's what I think. I love that I heard Jay Wolf laugh out loud. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's get to it. Um, so Isaiah 45.3 is one of my very favorite passages of Scripture. I know all of you in the room who know me well are probably tired of hearing this one, but I'm going to say it again because it is such a beautiful verse. Isaiah 45.3 says, I will give you hidden treasure in the darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am God, the God of Israel, the God who summons you by name. Now, I just had this beautiful picture of when you are forced into the deep darkness of your life, deep darkness in your story. There is a special treasure that the Lord has there for you. There is a hidden treasure that you are called to grab hold of and cherish every day for the rest of your life. That is very, very special. So I think maybe I have a few little nuggets of treasure to share, and they just happen to coincide with some S's that Sarah, with an S, shared. So um, I'm going to jump in and share some parenting Truth, and I think the most important thing for all of us in our stories is to recognize that as much as we share parenting hot takes and life hacks or mom hacks or whatever, what we're really doing is talking to ourselves. As much as we want to parent, what we are doing as we are teaching is we are learning these truths. There's something so powerful in me knowing as a speaker that what I'm really doing is just preaching to my own heart. I need this. I need to say these things, and I need to believe them by saying them again and again and teaching it to someone else. And that's what we are doing as parents. We are practicing truths, sharing truths. I think it's a very powerful idea. So honestly, I'm, all, I'm always doing that. So if you're taking notes, um, story is where we are going to start tonight, and I think you have printouts with story in there. So if you, yes, we do. So I believe, where is it? I have it right here, that Romans 8 is on here. Yes, it is. I love Romans 8. I deeply love um, so much of Romans 8, and I cannot encourage you enough to point your children to it. 
My younger sister, Amy, who has a, a, a hard story, a lot going on, and she comes to this church sometimes, look out for Amy Ariel. Amy was homeschooled when I was in eighth grade. She was in sixth grade. And my mom had her memorize Romans 8, 28 through 38. And I got jealous. I'm like, why does my sister get all this special scripture knowledge? I'm going to learn it. Um, and so I memorized those 10 verses. And never in my wildest dreams could I have known how much they would have meant to my adult life. The deep truth that we are more than conquerors in Christ. That what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? It goes on to say so much about the love of God and the true deep encouragement of knowing that God is with us in all things. And I would just highly encourage um, you to point your children to the, and point yourselves to those passages. And it was just a sweet God wink, Sarah, that that's how you would begin the segment on story because this passage of scripture is part of my story. And I don't know if you knew that. I did write about that in Hope Heals, so maybe you did. You probably did, you're really smart, so you probably linked that up. But that's just very special. But to share a little more about story with you. I got asked to give the chapel at my son's preschool several years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, where I live. And now, I lived here, but we moved to Georgia a few years ago. And for that chapel, I wanted to really start to speak into very young children's lives with the truth that their lives are a story that God is writing, that not a moment, but a story, that somehow this notion of story is something I at least really missed growing up, that God is writing a story. And so I had this idea to take a bedtime story to chapel and hold it up and say, hey, boys and girls, do you, what do you guys think about this book? Do you like reading a bedtime story at night? Yeah. Well, are there sad parts and hard parts and parts where you don't know what's going to happen and parts where the characters have to be brave? Is that part of the story? but does it have a happy ending in the story? And you know, all these little preschoolers are nodding and nodding. And I was able to say to them what I say to my own boys constantly, we both say it constantly, that God made you to do the hard thing in the good story that he's writing in your life. If you've read the epilogue printout that I think is in their packets, right? I love that you did that, because that is my heart is that I need to hear that for Catherine, but I want James and John to hear it for their lives, that Catherine, God made you to do the hard thing in the good story, because we know somehow it is a good story God is writing, but there may be very hard things in the good story. I actually made up a word. I think the English language is quite deficient in communicating this. Like good, 
and hard are always mutually exclusive. Have you noticed that? Like, they can't even be in the same sentence. But I say, that's ridiculous, let's link it up. It's good hard, just like bittersweet, but better. Good hard, because life is good and hard at the same time. It's not just one, they're not mutually exclusive. They coexist, and, and that's life. Here's the bottom line with our stories. I really think we need to teach our teenagers. If any of you have an angsty teenager, listen up from experience. We must teach our children that they get to decide how to feel about their story. That is so important for us adults and the children is that you get to decide now. A lot happens that is not in our control, a lot. Like me having a stroke, that was not in my control. But I get to control a lot now. And that's what is so powerful. And life with Jesus in the story, John 4, 4, greater is he in me than he who is in the world, makes us this special brand of I can do hard things knowing it's a good story God is writing. So I may not have control over what's happened to me, but now I have control over how I respond to it, how I remember it, how I think about it, how I narrate it, everything. I have total control of the now. And I think that is so powerful in each one of our stories. Okay, let's, let's get to storms. Another S, Sarah Reamer's storms. I love John 16, 33, that in this world you will have trouble, but we can take heart because he has overcome the world. Now, I love that it says will. You will have trouble. Not if you have some trouble, but you will. It's not if, it's will, it's when, it's coming. And that's... Um, that's very powerful. I think it's also super important, and I used an S word on purpose to share that storms can last for a season. Season. And to a child, a storm is the end-all be-all forever. And I think it is so critical to impart to our children, this is not what it will always feel like. And my next point to you will be that sorrow can remain, but we can hold the tension of both, I believe, that seasons can change, and there can be ongoing sorrow, and there can be joy, all in the same story. And maybe you heard that message a lot growing up, I did not, and I don't blame anyone for that. I don't think it's said much in the Western world there can be a deep joy and the sorrow and the season of suffering and they can all coexist. I think that's super important. Um, when Jay and I got married, his father performed our wedding. His father's a pastor of a Baptist church. And I must say, I like this Baptist church and you all have some wine before. Excellent. So, <laughs> Big Jay is the pastor of a wonderful Baptist church in Alabama and he did our wedding. And at our wedding, he felt called by the Lord to share a like homily message on Matthew 7, 24 and 25, which strangely enough is also in the notes. <laughs> you didn't know that? that? That was a homily at my wedding, which is crazy because who does that at a wedding? 
Who shares a word about there will be storms? Get ready, you need a foundation. Everybody's sharing, you know, Corinthians 13 and all these like joyous love passages. And Big J's like, get ready, you need a foundation, you gotta stand firm on the rock. And here we are 22 years old, like that was crazy talk. And yet, a few years later, it wasn't crazy at all. A few years later, storms came, winds blew, rain fell. So pretty, pretty powerful that he was narrating that already to us. I think, and this is a big statement, but walk with me. I think that suffering can become your superpower. Did you like the S's? Oh yeah. <laughs> I think suffering has the opportunity to be your superpower. And I'm gonna tell you why I think that, because that's a big statement. Number one, I think in our world today, in our modern Western experience of the world, there's not much need for Jesus. We have everything we need. We have so much comfort, so much access, so much, just things that, that really don't matter in the end, but we have ultimate, them all around us. They're almost clouding us from needing Jesus. And when you're in deep suffering, all that's are off. It's like, I need him in a way I didn't before this happened. And that is a profound superpower because the need for Jesus changes your need for everything else. And that's pretty powerful. Like, suffering is your superpower because you know what you really need. You learn what's important. Which brings me to point number two. Suffering is your superpower because, hold on, let me look at my notes and be sure I get this right. Because it gives you a different perspective on how to live out every day of the rest of your life. I love the beautiful truth of Romans 5, I think it's three through five, that suffering produces perseverance which produces character, which produces hope. And hope will never put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just love that thought so much that somehow suffering produces hope that will never put us to shame. And um, that superpower right there, that changes everything because when we have that deep character and deep perspective. It just changes how we, it informs how we live every day for the rest of our lives. The third point of how suffering is our superpower is, hold on, I can't read my own handwriting so much of the time. Jay Wolf, I may need you. Um, yes, um, I know. I, um, <laughs> he's, always, he's always helping me write this stuff. So sweet. The third point is that because it gives you a different heart of compassion, that when you suffer, you see differently afterwards. One of the greatest gifts of our lives, we feel like, is what terrible pain did to us, which kind of woke us up. It meant we couldn't go back to caring about as many things that don't really matter. We still care about plenty. But there is a sense that when you suffer deep pain, 
you are birthed anew. And in that birthing, you have this deep compassion for those around you who are hurting. And even the people who you don't think are hurting, you get a heart for them too. There's just a different way to live when you're suffering. You know, we, we kind of blew it up and um, started a camp for families <laughs> where somebody has disabilities and we bring a large amount of people to the Southeast every summer for a camp for families with disabilities, which we'll talk about in a minute, which the Reamers and the Metzlers were part of this summer and the Detores and anybody else in this room? I mean, all these cool people um, were there doing that with us, being a part of what I believe is disrupting the lie, the myth, the idol, that joy can only come in a pain-free life. Because so many uh, people who are in acute seasons of suffering recognize that that isn't true, that there can be terrible suffering and still be joy in the same story. And speaking of that camp, um, the final night of Hope Hills Camp for every session, we have what we call a Luke 14 dinner, which is a fancy special dinner where we invite everybody, all the people in the wheelchairs, all the fill-in-the-blank kids with spina bifida and adult amputees and all kinds of other issues all have this dinner party together. And we read Luke 14, the passage where the man goes into the street and invites everybody who can't pay him back to join him for dinner. Oh, it's so glorious. And it, we have essentially like a wedding reception-like experience at a camp. And it is just a game changer. I'm sure you all can attest the beauty of that moment of the Luke 14 banquet is powerful. And I think that's because we've tapped into the joyful rebellion of the darkness that we get to declare together that we can be joy rebels in the dark. And there's nothing like that. There is this powerful gift of compassion and seeing each other and perspective and it's holy. We have a sweet friend who in the first year of camp was dancing with both of his daughters who were nonverbal and non-mobile. And um, he did that for several years. And then one died, and then the next summer the other child died. And he told us that that was his wedding reception, that he will never dance with his little daughters this side of heaven, but they got to do it at camp. And, um, yeah, wow, really, really powerful stuff, which me crying would be a great place to go into sorrow, which I think is on your outline as well. Um, and I love the truth of Isaiah 53, that he himself was a man of sorrows. I love that so much. You know what's so interesting about sorrow is I feel like the world wants to tell us to get over it or just move on. Like, okay, move on and there's, I read a book years ago, I think it was Sheryl Sandberg's book, where she talked about no one really moves on. That's not a thing. You may move forward. You may move forward, but you never move on. And I think that is so accurate that because of the terrible storms we go through, we have scars. We have terrible scars. Some, some are real big. Some you don't see, some you do see in all of our stories. But I think scars are the best part. 
The scars are the proof that we lived. Scars are showing I made it to the other side and I'm gonna remember this. It's actually the opposite of, I'll just move on from it. It's the Lord saying, no, why don't you remember this one? Why don't you let it inform the way you live your life? I'm a big fan. I, um, I think I honestly, for years after the stroke, felt pretty self-conscious and guilty and silly for being um, sad, honestly. I have so much joy in the Lord. You can probably tell, I, I, like, I love my life. And yet, there is sorrow and sadness in this story. And I feel a low-grade sense that all is not well. And, you know, I think I felt a lot of shame about that. I think I said, thank you for this therapy moment I'm having. <laughs> I, I love it. Thank you um, for letting me be vulnerable. I felt a lot of shame that um, I could share the joy of the Lord but feel very sad. And um, the Lord really revealed to me that who lied to you and said there cannot be a low-grade sorrow in the same story where there is tremendous joy? We're not in heaven now. I love the David Crowder song, I don't know if you guys know it, that earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And the reality is we're not in heaven yet. We're on earth and there are sorrows on earth. And I think my mind began to understand that concept that there can be a low-grade sorrow for life. If any of you know who Priscilla Shire is, she's an amazing Bible teacher woman, and I got to be her um, special guest interview for her going beyond live tour last year. All over the country, it was really cool. And she told me after her first interview with me backstage, she said, no matter what you do the rest of this tour, always, always say that you feel sorrow. And I just thought, of everything I said, that's what you want me to be sure to say again? Are you serious? But in the same breath, I was like, because you know so many Christian people have never heard that. And that's powerful. You want me to say it out loud. For the lady in the back, there can be sadness, and that's okay. I, um, I will skip, skip to point number four, which is secure. I love this point, Sarah. I love it so much that you pointed us to Psalm 16.6, that the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Um, I really love it in this moment because crazy full circle, on my 30th birthday, I gave our message for CBS Bible study in this room based on Psalm 16.6 that my boundary lines had fallen in pleasant places. You could not have known that. That is so cool, the Lord did that. Because I, I'm obsessed with that thought that for some reason, this is what God has for my story. The boundary lines have fallen well. This is what God has for me to steward. This is my assignment in life. I, um, I gave the 
talk, maybe some of you were there actually, the Bel Air Prez Women's Retreat in 2005, I was one of the speakers, this was pre-stroke. And I remember saying, I wish we had a clip, it would be my old voice, saying that our identity in Christ, one of the, the biggest factors of identity in Christ is that we are secure in Him. And we are safe and secure under His wing and like really, marinating about the security that we have in Christ. And I obviously did not know that only a few months after that women's retreat, I would have a massive stroke and nearly die and need to know my security was in Christ alone. And really powerful, actually, that was, yeah, just about a year after the stroke, now, if you fast forward to 2012, um, Nicole, are you in the room? Nicole Johnson, this one's for you. You changed my life. Nicole Johnson hosted an incredible series of glorious weekends called Seasons. Some of you may be familiar with them. They're life-changing. Jay and I were one of the speakers. And at Cincinnati, Ohio Seasons in October of 2012, Sarah Groves, who I would point you to, incredible musician, Sarah Groves, look her up. She played a song called Open My Hands. And in that song, she wrote, I believe in a blessing I don't understand. I've seen rainfall on the wicked and the just. Rain is no measure of his faithfulness. He withholds no good thing from us. <sighs> I know, so good. And Around that time, I had really been on a personal journey to understand what good actually means. Because, for instance, Psalm 8411, no good thing does he withhold from those walking uprightly with him. Well, how could that be true? Don't we know people who have anything but the good things in their story? But how could God be good when we see wrecked marriages, failing health of everybody, financial problems, fill in the blank, just a bunch of junk. And I raced over to Sarah after she had done singing in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I said, Sarah, please talk me through how you got to those lyrics and those words and how you reconcile no good thing to see withhold with like life on earth and just talk me through your process there. And she pointed me to a theologian from the 1600s, Sir Richard Baker, who wrote the following, and it has absolutely changed my life. He wrote, the truly good things of God, the best things of God, are not things at all. The truly good things of God are peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, the fruition of his presence in this life and the assurance of his face in the next. Of these things, we can know God will never withhold from those walking with him because they are not things this physical world could ever touch. And something just whew, happened in my brain of, I get it. Like, I can remember taking a very bad fall shortly after that. And I was laid up on the floor in maybe John's room. And Jay was running in, maybe John was crying, James was running and screaming. And I think, oh my goodness, I've broken my other leg because I had broken my right leg the year before. 
and I'm laying there on the ground, and my first thought was, I'm untouchable. I know too much to flip out. In this moment, when one of the worst things that could happen may have happened, I know that the good things of God are already here and they aren't leaving, and I know too much history to flip out. I know that God has showed up every single time before. I'm completely secure and safe in him. You know, that is so cool to share. I hope you're riveted, like, oh my gosh, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Like, oh yes, absolutely, the good things of God, that is amazing, like, yes. But then, you know, like this is Wednesday night, and on Wednesday night, absolutely, give God the glory. And then Friday morning, your life falls apart. And suddenly, wrong, not gonna work, not here for it. Well. The reason I stood up is to make a memory, because listen, here's what you got to do. Sometimes you got to get sassy with your own soul, and that's for you, because that's two more S's. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, we have to get our soul back on board. Psalm 42, 5, we hear the psalmist say, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then we see the change. Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my rock and my salvation. We see the psalmist literally get sassy with his own soul. He probably wouldn't say that, but I would. I love those S's and I love sassy. It's just kind of a funny word. <laughs> and I love saying that. Anyway, we're close to the end, I promise, and um, this really has been a wonderful little outline, Sarah. I thank you. In closing, I want to call us to call our children, but also ourselves, to live lives of deep responsibility and creativity. Now, come with me because that seems so weird and random, I know. But listen, I think so many of the problems that our children are facing is because there is a distinct lack of responsibility that's being taken for the story that God is writing. And I think I see that in how I could have responded to my stroke of becoming super bitter of becoming super angry, of becoming very, like, just mad at the world, mad at God, really feeling like, like I could never own this, I could never live this life. But what if we taught our children and taught ourselves, you can take responsibility for the story. You can thrive in this story that God's writing because you know that God only writes good stories. I think the second part of that, so we must teach our children to live lives of creativity in him. That everything that's in their wildest dreams may not happen. And we got to teach our children that, like your wildest dreams may not come true, precious puchums. It may not happen for you, just like you think it's going to, but it can still be incredibly beautiful. It may look nothing like you thought, when little girl Catherine was eight years old, she didn't really think she would be in a wheelchair when she was now 40. But um, 
I get to say how I feel about this. I have distinct dominion over that shred of my life, and I kind of like it. And you're almost not supposed to say that because you're supposed to be angsty and hate your life, and it's so cool to be over it and annoyed. And I'm like, you know what? Can't relate. I kind of like it. Like, this is a great life. I love the truth of Galatians 6, 5, and the message especially. It's so good. Um, it says, each of you must take responsibility and be creative with the life right in front of you. And I love that thought so much. This has informed the way I live. I pray, but I'm not sure the way that I'm parenting. TBD, like I said. Um, I would love to pray now is now the moment for, well, I don't know. I shouldn't say, what is this moment? This is a moment for John. Awesome. And Jay? Or Oh, okay, brilliant. I, well, I can tell you about it if you want me to. Well, but first, let's thank Catherine oh. for. Oh, thank you guys so much. What a, and thank you, thank you especially for sticking so close to Sarah's S's there. Thank you. Uh, I was trying to stay on the side. You got to experience a little bit of my story there, which yeah. is great. <laughs> oh. Uh-huh. One of the things I love about being with these guys is how much we laugh. I mean, we laugh and laugh and laugh. Every time we're with the wolves, all we do is laugh um, and cry, but we can do both those things at the same time. I think that's part of the, the heart that's of what, right. what, uh, what Jane and Catherine are, are teaching us this evening. So I thought that, or we thought what we'd do to end the evening, uh, benediction, that's a churchy word for what you do at the end of a service, and it means good word in Latin. Maybe the best word, um, and this is one of the, the books um, that Jane Catherine have written. The epilogue is so powerful. It's in your handout that you have um, in the folder. And we've asked Catherine if she just might read it aloud to us just as a way to, to end her presentation. And after that, we're gonna sing another song and then Sarah will have a couple words and, and, we'll, and we'll call it an evening. So would you mind? Absolutely. I love that y'all, once again, just brilliantly know my heart. I mean, this is, this is so important to me, um, hence why it's the epilogue of our book. Um, because this really happened shortly after we moved out of Los Angeles. And I don't really want to break down crying, but all of our sweet friends surely impacted this moment, right when we moved to Atlanta, that all the true unveiling of suffering from, I mean, I can't look at all of you wonderful people, led, led to this. We tucked our kids in bed at the end of a long day. They protested, we protested right back. It was, it was time. We prayed and sang in our usual way, but for some reason that night, I was prompted to offer one last seed the soil of their nearly sleeping heads and hearts. Maybe it was a response to their time-honored request for God to help them just have a good day tomorrow, or their suddenly communicated fear of the future and not-so-subtle fear of the dark. It seemed another truer word needed to be spoken aloud. As we knelt by their silhouettes, 
The tearful declaration sprang from my lips with surprising strength and clarity, perhaps because I had been telling it to my own heart all along. James and John, God made you to do the hard thing in the good story he's writing in your life. Whether tomorrow is the best day, worst day, or last day of our lives, we pray that God will give us everything we need to live it out to the fullest with courage and joy. This is the good hard life. This is the way of Jesus, the way of glory through sacrifice, flourishing within limitations, and with unstoppable love coursing through the whole thing. It is golden. It will be hard, but we have already been made for the hard. God has equipped us with everything we need for the journey ahead, most of all himself. And the story being written, unexpected and painful and long and short, or short as it may be, will still be good because he can't write any other kind of story. This message is the message of my life and of every life awakened to its own broken down but miraculous nature. It has taken time and tears, along with many teachers and much grace, to uncover this, and even more of all those things to actually believe it. But my upended life has revealed my second chance life. The redefining of me has become the refined me, and I truly love my life. I want to cherish it and champion it even the parts I never could have imagined. And I want to live it well to the very end. And may it be so for us all. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.